Aren't you glad you came to church today? Man, I'm glad you came to church today. I'm glad I came to church today. That was wonderful, wonderful time. Um, I'm curious as we start things out, how many of you have a favorite writing utensil? Like there's one that is just clearly head and shoulders above the rest. I see a few hands going up. Okay, a few more. Some of you are thinking about it. I know for me it's the Uniball Signo 207, the medium weight one. Thank you very much. That thin line one is trash. The heavyweight one is just too much. I can't write small. I love this pen. When I have this pen, I enjoy writing, and when I don't have this pen, I do not enjoy writing as much. That's just the way it goes. It is the perfect pen. And it matters because I write, you know, two, three, four pages a day on a regular basis in journals, and I'm kind of old school, so I don't take all my notes on keyboards uh, or on my thumbs. I, I often am writing things on a yellow pad and keeping notes that way. And so when the pen is working well, life is good. And when the pen is not working well, life ain't good, right? Like, you get it, okay? And I'm thankful for these pens. In fact, I was reading through my sabbatical journal. A year ago, the church was kind enough to gift me and my family with a ministry sabbatical. And during that process, I kept a daily journal, a journal of events that were taking place as well as a prayer journal. And in that prayer journal, as is my case every day, I, I start by writing some things that I'm thankful for. Uh, that gratitude leads to joy, joy leads to contentment. I firmly believe this. And so I was reading back through this recently, and I saw this, this entry that I wanted to read to you. It says, thank you for this new pen. You see, we don't have to just thank God for big things. We can thank God for little things. That's okay. I said, thank you for this new pen, and how much better and smoother it writes than the one that I was using yesterday. I think this is an illustration of the type of changes I want to make in the next season of life and ministry. You see, I kept trying to get the old pen to work. It was one of these, but it was a dud. You ever get a dud? Do you just throw it away or do you try to make it work? Because sometimes it's just the ball's not working right, and if you scrape it or you do this thing, you know, you can finally get it to go, and then you saved that pen, and you saved that dollar or whatever that the pen has worked. In fact, I found when I looked at the page before, how light the, the writing had gotten because I was trying really hard. I was rolling it in my hand and trying to make it work. I even found a page where I had done a bunch of scribbles and tried to get it to write, and I wrote, come on, you stupid pen, just write like you're supposed to. How about now? Why does it work now? Oh, now it doesn't work anymore. Like, it was just not working consistently, and it was really, really frustrating. And so... I write in the journal, when I finally ditched it and got a better pen, it was so much easier. The pads of my fingers are still a little sore from trying to use the lousy pen yesterday. There may be some adjustments for me in the future and some growing pains or residual discomfort in the initial period after the changes are made, but they will go away. You see, there's value in moving on from something that's just not working. And if you're a little cheap like I am, you can double down on the sunk cost that you have in the old system that's not working and miss the opportunity to move on. It might even be difficult to let go. There might be some growing pains, but it will be incredibly positive in the long run. I think that's going to play into our message in some way as we continue our series titled Kingdom Economics. We launched this series last week. We're highlighting the idea that the world's economics, that worldly economics are different than kingdom economics. And that kingdom economics are better 
And so we are spending four weeks to learn, apply, and grow in financial wisdom. One of our resources for this, and much of this series, is based on the Ron Blue Institute and four H's of financial wisdom that they have put together that have been able to help us grow in financial wisdom. So last week we looked at the heart. Today we'll look at the health. Next week, habits. And finally, on the last week, hope. And we're talking about money because God talked about money. He talked about money a lot. We're not talking about money because we're on the ropes financially or because the church just wants your money. No, we're talking about money because there are references to money all over the Old Testament. Jesus came and taught a lot about money. We'll look at a couple of Jesus' teachings about money. And then Paul and the New Testament writers that wrote letters and wrote things to the early church, they also talk about money. So we're talking about money because God talks about money, and clearly God cares about our relationship with money. And so my prayer is that each and every one of us would lean in, would look to learn something new, would take notes, would apply what you find, what you learn to your life. That's what wisdom is. It's knowledge applied. It's not just that we continue to accumulate knowledge. It's that we apply that knowledge to our lives. And maybe there'll even be something that you can share. We've had these little handouts on the seats, and we'll be talking about this one today. There was one last week. We'll keep the extras on the tables in the back. But if you know somebody that would benefit from this, we added a QR code this week so that you can go to a website that is stocked with financial resources that can help you grow in financial wisdom and take the next step. But I want to challenge you today and in the next couple of weeks, don't just listen for what you like. Don't just listen for the attaboy or the pat on the back. Yeah, I'm doing good there. Listen and have an ear for something that makes you uncomfortable, something that you don't really like. And you're like, are you sure? Does it really say that? And as I mentioned last week, we're going to be in a lot of Scripture over the course of this because this is what God's Word has to say about this. These aren't my ideas. These are the ideas that have been accumulated from Scripture. And our goal is that everyone would grow to financial maturity. Everyone would grow in financial wisdom. Because did you realize you can be financially secure without being financially mature? That's possible. There are a whole lot of people out there that are financially secure. They have well-diversified portfolios. They, they can weather any economic storm. They have amassed tremendous resources. They're financially secure, but they are not financially mature in regards to kingdom economics. And there are people in the church that are not financially mature, even though they're relatively financially secure. And so I encourage the kids to pay attention as well. In some areas, I think kids probably have this down better than their adults. And, and we celebrate that we have kids in the service with us today. You might hear them from time to time, and that's just a joyful noise in our family of families. We do this on the fifth Sunday. Whenever there's a fifth Sunday, which happens four times a year, because there'll be five Sundays, four months out of a year. And we bring our whole family of families together because we really value every generation and we really value our kids. And we even have like some handouts for those kids. If you miss those, if they're right outside this set of, of back sanctuary doors on the right there, and you can give them something that'll keep their hands busy um, and, and might be helpful. There's two age uh, groups there. But we really celebrate that. We celebrate that Generations Choir. Man, that was such a treat. Thank you to everyone who sang in the choir. Thank you to those who helped plan and prepare and lead that because that was a tremendous blessing. But today we're going to talk about kingdom health. Kingdom health and 
today's reality is sort of the subtitle, that we'll look at today's economic reality for each and every one of us in these five areas that are included here. And the reason we do that is sort of our bottom line for today. Did you realize you cannot change a reality that you will not face? You cannot change a reality that you will not face. Just like the pen illustration, I had to give up on the broken pen, the dud pen. And some of us have competing financial realities in our lives, and certain areas of our financial lives are broken, and we need to stop doing it the world's way, or not even the world's way, and start doing it the kingdom way. And so as we go through these areas, I would ask you to just evaluate, am I doing it God's way in this area of my life? Because when we look at our financial health, this little pie chart helps us identify that there are five simultaneously competing realities for our money. And they break down into these five different areas, live, give, owe, and grow. And you're like, well, live, give, owe, and grow, that's only four. Well, lucky us, there's two O's, right? (laughs) As we earn income, we owe taxes, and if we accumulate debt, we owe on our debts. And so those make the five competing priorities for the use of our money. But God's Word speaks to each. And you'll notice in the middle of that circle is a reminder from last week that God owns it all. Our theme verse, if we have one for this series for Kingdom Economics, is that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and everyone in it. That's Psalm 24, verse 1. And so there's a reminder that even though we have these competing realities, these competing priorities for our money, God ultimately owns it all. And so well, let's look at this. We'll start with live. And I want to read 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. This is a powerful passage on how we use the money that we have to live. We have to live in this world. That takes money. It takes money to have shelter and to have food and to have clothing and to have those types of things. But Paul, late in life, writes this letter to Timothy. See, Paul had amassed some financial wisdom. And he shares that wisdom. That's one of the things I'm challenging some of you to do in this series is to share that wisdom with others. He shares that wisdom with a young pastor and tells him, these are some things that you can tell your church about how to live with financial wisdom. He says in verse 6 of 1 Timothy chapter 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. How many of you like to look at your stock portfolio and see if it's going up or going down? We want great gains, right? But Paul, long before any open markets, long before this investment system, he shows us where there is a great gain that each and every one of us can have, whether or not we have money to invest in the market. It's godliness with contentment. That is great gain. Did you know that contentment is incredibly affordable? It's one of the best deals out there. That if you can just be content with what you have and not have to get the newer and the better and the bigger and the fancier and the shinier because you're content with what you have, and you do so in godly financial wisdom, there's great gain in that. He continues, For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. That's a reality. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with what we have. There's that word content again. Then he issues a strong warning. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. How many of you would like a little more ruin and destruction in your life? I don't know about you. i got enough ruin and destruction in this world around me. I don't need to invite any into my life. And Paul draws a straight line between wanting to get rich, falling into temptation and a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge us into ruin 
and destruction. Then he shares with us one of the most often misquoted verses in the Bible. He says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. How many of you have heard that money is the root of all evil? That's not what Scripture tells us. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I wanted to get rich when I was young. It did cause me to wander from the faith at times. And I was pierced with many griefs as debts accumulated in my life. So I say amen to this. I know that this is true. And I will bring it back to the opening line there that godliness with contentment is great gain. And it is contrasted with the love of money in those last verses. That is a great loss. And it's interesting because my Banding Together reading, I picked the fourth of the Old Testament tracts for the summer, and so we've been reading through the wisdom literature, and we just read Ecclesiastes in this last week, and it talks about this in so many ways, and the value of contentment and satisfaction, and the dangers of wanting more and more, and it calls it grasping at the wind. And it even says in one point, those who love money will never have enough of it, and those who our desiring wealth will never have enough income. You see, we never have enough. And that's why Paul talks about contentment twice, I believe. And so Ron Blue distills this idea around living wisely in the kingdom economics with financial wisdom into this statement. Practice provision, contentment, and enjoyment because money is a tool. That's on the card here. It's on the screen. As a good reminder, there's some additional scriptures there that you could look and do a little Bible study throughout the week if one of these areas really jumps off the page to you. But practicing provision, that means we earn money. We work hard. We use the gifts and abilities that God has given us and the opportunities that he sets before us to earn, to participate in his provision in our lives. Then we receive that with gratitude. We're content with what we have and choose satisfaction over a love of money. We find enjoyment in that. Did you see the word joy right there in the middle of the word enjoyment? That, that money could be a source of joy in our lives. That God's provision could be a source of joy in our lives. When so many people in the church and outside the church, money is a source of anxiety and frustration and anger. And yet, kingdom economics cast a different vision for our lives. And we see money as a tool, so we choose to work hard to be grateful, to love God more than we love money and to steward the resources he gives us well. And there's a tremendous example of this. It happens to be John Wesley, who the Wesleyan church that Linwood is a part of was named after in his book, uh, Four Lessons on Money from One of the World's Richest Preachers. Not materially wealthy, but he was wealthy. Charles Edward White says this about John Wesley. In 1731, Wesley began to limit his expenses so that he would have more money to give to the poor. He records that one year his income was 30 pounds, and his living expenses were 28 pounds, so he had two pounds to give away. The next year, his income doubled through writing and speaking engagements, but he still lived on 28 pounds and gave 32 pounds away. In the third year, his income jumped again to 90 pounds, yet he lived on 28, giving 62 away. The fourth year, he made 120 pounds, but lived again on 28 and gave 92 pounds to the poor. He summarizes this way, Wesley believed that with, his, with increasing income, the Christian's standard of giving should increase, not his standard of living. 
One year late in his life, his income was slightly over 1,400 pounds, 50 times more than when he started. He gave away all except for 30 pounds. Now, that's a pretty extreme example. And you would say, boy, I don't know about that, Pastor Mark. You lost me there. But there are contemporary examples of people that have chosen this route as well. I remember hearing about Rick Warren that he had started tithing and incrementally increasing his, his giving percentage when he became the pastor of a large megachurch in, in California. Then he wrote a book that sold 35 million copies. And his royalties were seven figures every year. And he said he and his wife chose to become reverse tithers to live on 10% and give 90% to expanding the kingdom work in the world. And he set an example for his congregation that has now planted a church in 165 different countries on earth. Tremendous kingdom impact through that decision to not allow the standard of living to increase forever, but to choose to increase our standard of giving. That leads us to the next one, to the give. We live, give, oh, oh, and grow. Giving is an area where I think some of our kids in the room might be able to teach us a thing or two. Kids by nature can be very generous, can't they? Like we were surprised to learn that when we started giving our children a, a we called it pay, we never gave them an allowance. You're like, nobody's going to give you money just for being alive. So you've got chores, you can do those chores, and when you do those chores, you're going to get income. And we found that they never spent the money <laughs> that we gave them until Christmas or birthdays so that they could buy gifts for each other. And we were really affirmed by that and a little challenged by that, that that was what was in their heart and their desire to do. Jesus said a lot about money, and, and right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount is one of his strongest and most clear teachings on money, and it has to do with giving. He says in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 24, "'Do not store up for yourselves,' Treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And what he's basically saying, don't stockpile it all here. This is not what it's all about. It's all about there. It's all about the kingdom of heaven. It's all about sending it forward because when you make investments into the kingdom of heaven, your heart follows those investments into the kingdom of heaven. If you've ever made a large sacrificial gift to a ministry or to a missionary or to some big kingdom initiative, your heart has followed that. You've found it easier to pray for those people. You've been interested in the newsletters. You've paid attention because your heart followed your money into that area of kingdom work. You see, when we treasure money, when we treasure time, and we choose to send that treasure into the kingdom of God, our hearts follow. And so Ron Blue summarizes the area of giving in that competing priority by saying, let me open my hand to release God's resources because He wants my heart connected to His kingdom story. Did you realize God wants your heart? connected to the kingdom story that he's writing in and through your life and in and through your community, and that when we send our treasure into the kingdom of God, our hearts follow it, and it becomes easier to serve, and it becomes easier to pray, and it becomes easier to do all of those things. When we release those things, we open our hands and release God's resources into kingdom investments, our hearts become connected to his kingdom story. Now, the biblical standard for giving here would be the tithe. Over and over in the Old Testament, we're told to, 
give a tithe. And I think sometimes God just wanted to make the math really easy. You get a dollar, give a dime. You don't have to carry the seven. You don't have to do anything. You get a dollar, you give a dime. I'll play that game all day long. If anybody wants to get a stack of dollars, I'll go find a stack of dimes. You can give me a dollar, I'll give you a dime. Over and over and over. As long as you want to play that game, I'm happy to play that game. That's the way God set it up for us. He made it really easy. And he says, give a tithe. And it's interesting to me because if you read your Old Testament, you know that when the people of God moved into the promised land, in Judges, or Joshua, and then Judges, and you see the history, when they're dividing everything up, 11 of the 12 tribes got an allotment of land that would produce an income that would care for their needs. And one tribe, one out of 12, was not given an allotment of land. And the tithes from the other 11 were supposed to go so that the Levites wouldn't have to work the land, that they could live off the land as other people give sacrificially to support them. So they could lead in worship, and they could lead in the teaching, and they could lead the nation spiritually. And it's fascinating to me that there were 11 tithes that came in, so there should be more than enough. There were offerings on top of that that people could give so that the poor and those who had experienced financial hardship would have enough. Now, in the New Testament, the standard is generosity and giving cheerfully. That's what we see taught over and over again. And people have come to me and said, well, you know, the New Testament doesn't say much about tithing. So I don't think we're supposed to tithe anymore, Pastor Mark. I think that's not biblical in the New Testament. And I think, well, there's this one place where Jesus is talking about this specifically. He says, you know, these Pharisees, they give, they tithe even on the herbs in their garden. But they're stingy towards God. They should have done the former and not neglected the latter. So Jesus is saying we should tithe. I I do think that. And I also think philosophically and linguistically, generosity would not be less than the established minimum standard. Generosity would be more than the established minimum standard. So when the New Testament is talking about generosity, it's talking about generosity to a people that fully understood that we should give a tithe. We should give a tenth to God and to his work. And you might be sitting here listening to this. You might be watching online. Somebody shared this with you, and you're like, you have no idea. No idea, Pastor Mark. I don't live paycheck to paycheck. I live paycheck to almost paycheck. I run out of money before I run out of month on a regular basis. And you're telling me I'm supposed to give 10%? There's no possible way. And to that I would say, just run from nothing. Watch God's principles begin to work in your life. Bring your life into alignment with biblical teaching. Don't settle for nothing. Give something. Give something and grow in the grace of giving and move from nothing to something. And then once you move from nothing to something, move from something to scheduled. Schedule it. There's ways that you can do this through our church center app or through giving online where you can schedule it. So it's not like I'm just going to drop a 20 in the plate if I happen to have cash, but I'm going to schedule it. I'm going to pick a percentage, and then I'm going to start to grow in that. And maybe it's one, but the next year you get a raise, and now you can give two, and then you can give three, and then you can give four. Fascinating thing about that Charles Wesley or John Wesley example that I hadn't noticed before was that that first year he got 30 and he spent 28. Wesley didn't tithe in year one. Tithe would have been three pounds. But eventually he kept growing his standard of giving to the point that he was giving way beyond a tithe. And so we don't just stop at scheduled. We don't just stop at tithe. We move on to sacrificial. We move on to, to making it a sacrificial gift. And I think this is where a lot of people in the modern church have gotten it wrong. They've stopped at a tithe, and they have not continued to exercise generosity and giving sacrificially. 
And we've seen this in our own life. You know, when we first started tithing, let's just say easy math. These are not our numbers. But it was a sacrifice. Say we were making 50000 a year and we were giving five and we had 45 left to live, live on. That was a huge sacrifice for us. And I remember it hurt. But now let's just double the numbers for easy math. <laughs> if we're making 100000 and we're giving 10, that means we only have 90000 left to live on. Right? Is that still, does tithe represent sacrifice? Or if somebody's making a million dollars a year and they give 10%, kudos to them, thumbs up, but they only have $900,000 to live on. Does that 100000 represent a sacrifice? And we're called to give cheerfully. We're called to give generously. We're called to give sacrificially. Now, moving on to our favorites here, right? Owing. We owe money for debt. We owe money for taxes. Let's look at debt first, because Proverbs, written by the wisest man who ever lived, Proverbs 22.7 says, The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. This is why we can't serve God and money. Because if we get ourselves into a big pile of debt, we're servant to a lender. And we're working for them. And a big portion of what comes in that God provides us has to go right back out to that lender. And this is why we can't serve God and money. And so Ron Blue encourages us, eliminate debt. Because debt always presumes upon the future. Even when it's, you know, investment debt. It presumes upon the future. Most debt is, I can't afford this thing now, but I want this thing now. And I got a decent job, so, you know, I can borrow a whole pile of money, and then I'll pay it back little by little over the years. And there are certain things in areas where you could make a case that this makes some sense. Appreciating assets, those types of things. But when you're doing that for a depreciating asset, and you're presuming upon the future and the ability to keep earning that income, we all know people who have found out they couldn't pay that back. They made a presumption, and then life changed. Or they made that presumption so many times that it got to the point that they couldn't even make their minimum payments and they had to go into bankruptcy. And so we see this presumption upon the future. That's not financial wisdom. Financial wisdom is to have margin. We're going to talk a lot about margin next week. But for now, I just want to encourage you, if, as we pause kind of in the middle here, there may be a financial reality that needs to be faced. That in the area of debt, we've gotten way out of line. And this is normal in America Debt is normal in America. Debt is, the, I mean, the average person, I've seen numbers as, as low as 8,000 and as high as 16,000. The average household has that much just revolving debt. That's not counting mortgages and vehicles. That's credit card debt. And so there may be a financial reality that needs to be faced here. Dave Ramsey was as helpful to us as anybody in the area of getting out of debt. We used to kind of just, hey, if I, we had money left on our credit line, <laughs> we had money. That was really foolish. But we did that for some time. And it was Dave Ramsey who helped us to get out of debt through his principles, kingdom principles, I believe. No new debt. That was the first step that we had to take. We had to make a decision. We are not going into debt for anything at all. We saved up an emergency fund, and we said no more new debt. And then we started what he calls a debt snowball, where you list all your debts, and you start giving all your extra income to the smallest one. Seems a little counterintuitive. But as soon as you pay that one off, you take everything you were given to that one and you put it down on the next one. And then that one goes away pretty fast. And then you move down to the next one and the next one. And pretty soon, you're completely debt-free. You can get out of debt. He encourages us to do that because that's where we find financial freedom. 
And he encourages us to do, to do getting out of debt and to approaching that debt snowball with what he calls gazelle intensity. And I love this because it comes right from the pages of Scripture. In Proverbs 6, 4, and 5, these words are written from a, a parent to a child, presumably, who has come into debt, who has signed a security for a neighbor. He says, no, get out of that as quickly as you can. Allow no sleep to your eyes, no slumber to your eyelids. Free yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the snare of the fowler. That's gazelle intensity. If you've ever watched a gazelle trying to get away from a lion or a leopard that's gotten a hold of it, it is not this casual, oh, if I have a little extra money, I'll put it on a credit card. No, they are getting out of that situation as quickly as possible. He gives some examples of gazelle intensity. He said, you know, if you're on debt, you should eat beans and rice six days a week. And on the seventh day, when you get tired of beans and rice, you switch it up. You have rice and beans that night. Because you have gazelle intensity. You want to get out of debt as quickly as you can. The only time you go and see the inside of a restaurant is if you're working a second job in the kitchen. You're not going to restaurants. You've got gazelle intensity. You've broken your finances. You want to get out of debt as quickly as possible. He summarizes gazelle intensity with this idea that you live like no one else. Because debt is dumb. And debt is normal. And everybody's going into debt. You live like no one else so that one day you can live like no one else. One day you can have the life you dreamed of and not have to finance it and not have to pay it back for 36 months or 48 months or the next 30 years. He says you live like no one else so that one day you can live like no one else and give like no one else. This points us back to our last one, that we would have more resources to give, more resources to share. And I remember the turning point for us when we really got serious about getting out of debt. There were a confluence of circumstances that were happening, but one that rises to the surface for me was I was standing in line at a Walmart pharmacy in West Virginia. And I was waiting to get my prescription, but I was overhearing the situation that was taking place in front of me. And there was a woman there whose insurance had gotten messed up, and she needed medicine for her son. And they couldn't give it to her unless she could pay $300. Something had gotten messed up. She was going to have to call the insurance. She said, you don't understand. I can't leave here without that medicine. My kid needs it. And they said, I'm sorry, ma'am, you don't understand. We can't give it to you unless you can give us $300. And she said, I don't have $300. And there's this tension going on inside of me. And I know I should have paid for her, money, for her medicine. I should have just said, I will pay for your medicine. But I didn't. I missed that opportunity because we were in debt. And, and there was just, I couldn't imagine an extra $300 that month. And I remember crying about it on the way home. I remember having a conversation with Heather. I was like, we got to get out of debt so we can help people in these situations. And that was when we really got serious about getting out of debt and tackling our debt snowball. And, and praise God, now we've paid for people's groceries when their snap card was messed up. We've bought tires for people that really needed a new set of tires. We've been able to do those things because we were out of debt and we had that margin in our lives. And so... One of the things that probably blessed me the most at the beginning of COVID in the pandemic and when the, the government was sending out checks, uh, stimulus packages, there were people that were calling us up and said, we got this check, we don't need it. Do you know somebody in the church that needs it? Could we bring it in, give it to you, you can give it to them. They don't even know who it came from. We don't need to know. We trust you guys to do that. And, and so we were able to help some people that were without income and where their stimulus wasn't enough. And we've got this helping hand fund here at Linwood that we use to help people that have unexpected or, you know, severe uh, economic downturns. And people give to that, and then people can come and receive from that. And it's a beautiful thing. It's how the kingdom of God is supposed to work. But it's really hard to do those things when you have so much debt 
that you can't imagine even meeting the minimum biblical standards. So I want to encourage you in that area. There is hope, and these things work, and you can get out of debt. The next one is taxes. How many of you like paying taxes? Raise your hands real high. One down here. I don't know how many tax. I have this thing called the dad tax with my kids. You know, when they buy candy, there's a dad tax on that candy. I want them to understand that someday somebody's going to take 10, 20, 30 percent of whatever they make. So when they bring in their candy, I take 10, 20, 30 percent of it, and that's the dad tax. So we're teaching them about this. They, clearly, they enjoy that. I'll have to keep doing it. Jesus had something really interesting to say about taxes towards the end of his ministry in the book of Matthew. Matthew 22, verses 17 through 21. The the Pharisees and the teachers of the law have come to Jesus. They're trying to trap him. And so they think they've come up with this really good question that they're going to zing Jesus with. They say, tell us, what's your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you always trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying tax. So they brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose portrait is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. So Ron Blue talks about taxes and says, Pay taxes with gratitude. They reflect God's provision. How many of you like that idea? Paying taxes with gratitude because they reflect God's provision? Not very many. And it's fascinating to me that all the things that Jesus could have said here, man, he could have said a lot of things about Caesar. He could have said a lot of things about Rome. History tells us that Rome would come in and they would occupy, they would take over, they would have a military conquest of an area, and then they would tax those people to the brink of destitution. And if you couldn't pay your taxes, you could borrow from them, but the interest was so high you would never be out of debt just for your taxes. And they did all of this without positive social programs. There were no welfare lines. There was nothing from Roman taxation that benefited the people of Israel with the possible exception of better roads, just so they could cart everything back to Rome and build one of the most beautiful cities that the world has ever seen. That's how Rome handled things. It was the most oppressive political system imaginable for the people of Israel. And yet... The ESV Study Bible points out Jesus is not establishing a political kingdom in opposition to Caesar. So he says here that his followers should pay taxes and obey civil laws. Now, a little side note, a little rabbit trail, if you'll permit me, for just a few minutes. This right here, this story and several others like it, are one of the main reasons that I'm so apolitical in this pulpit. Now, some people have shared with me they wish I was a lot more conservative or a lot more liberal and that I would advocate for those ideologies, and I don't, and I don't for a reason. Because if there was ever a political system that Jesus could have denounced, it was Rome. Trust me. And he did not. He even said things in the Sermon on the Mount like, if a soldier oppressively forces you to carry all his gear one mile, go ahead and go a second mile. Of all the things he could have said about that practice, he said, go the extra mile. And I do believe, and people tell me sometimes, you've got to speak up. You've got to stand up for right, what's right. And I agree. We do need to do that. We need to do it like Jesus would. And a whole lot of what's happening on cable TV and cable news is not the way Jesus would stand up for these things. 
And so we wrestle with this from time to time as a leadership board. I wrestle with this. In a month or so, you're going to see some abortion crosses on our front lawn because we stand with the unborn. We stand against abortion. That is not a political issue. That's a moral issue that's been politicized. There's a difference. But I want you to know that I and I firmly believe our board of, and our staff, we really desire to lead Jesus with his Lead Linwood as Jesus would if he were us. That's my hope as your pastor. And I recognize I fall short of that. That's a tall order. And I don't always get it right. But that's the desire. That's the mark that I'm aiming for. And I hope that each and every one of us desires to live our lives as Jesus would if he were us. That's called discipleship. That's what we do when we become disciples of Christ. We decide that we want to live our lives as Jesus would if he were us. So back to taxes. I remember when I was a young insurance agent. And I was barely getting by, right? Even in the good months, it seemed like I was barely getting by. And I was on the bottom half of the, of the office pecking order. They report everything, so everybody knows how much you're making. They know when you're having a good month. They know when you're not. And there was a couple of agents that were standing there, and they got to the point of complaining about taxes and how much they were paying in taxes. And I remember them complaining about that and thinking, God, I would love to pay as much in taxes as you pay, right? I would love to pay what you're complaining about. Because taxes represent God's provision in our lives. When we pay taxes, it's because God has provided something for us. And not only that, but our taxes provide things that we benefit from tremendously. I don't like paying taxes, but I do like what taxes pay for in so many ways. And do I think that our government could do a better job of handling those resources? Absolutely. Do I think they should be held accountable when they don't? Absolutely. But I don't want to be angry about paying for something that I benefit from and represents God's provision in my life. So I encourage you, pay taxes with gratitude. They reflect God's provision. You've got to pay them whether you're grateful or not. Might as well be grateful. Gratitude leads to joy. Joy leads to contentment. Last one, grow. We want to grow our money, right? Now you might say, well, this seems incompatible with this idea of give it all away like John Wesley. But Proverbs tells us there's a balance to this. Proverbs tells us that in the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has. So when we talk about growing our money, we're talking about intentionally setting aside some for the future so that in our financially wise homes, there might be stores of the things that we will need in the future. Choice food and oil. That's wise. That's wisdom. But it's contrasted by a foolish man who devours all he has. Again, this is something where our kids, like I am so pleased when I see how our kids handle money and how they save money. When I got my hands on some money, I rode my bike out to Pomida and I bought candy with that money. Almost every time. Unless it was a lot of money, and then I'd save a little bit so I could have candy later. Like, you notice the trend. Our kids save their money. It's awesome. And I, I'm reading things about how Gen Z is a saving generation, and it's messing with the markets a little bit, and they're trying to figure out, how do we get Gen Z to spend more than they make? That's what the world's economic system is trying to figure out. They were really good at it with baby boomers and Gen X, but they're trying to figure out how to get Gen Z to spend more than they make because they're a saving generation. I think we can learn something from them. Maybe have a conversation with your kids or your grandkids and learn some wisdom from them. Ron Blue summarizes the area of growing by demonstrating financial maturity by giving up today's desires for tomorrow's benefit. We choose to save before we spend. We choose to have some money set aside for retirement, for a rainy day, for an unexpected job loss, through all kinds of things that can happen to us. We choose to set money aside to grow that money 
Instead of just getting everything we want right now, a fool devours all he has. And so we demonstrate financial maturity. We demonstrate our faith with our finances. We talked about that last week. By giving up today's desires for tomorrow's benefit. A good guideline is maybe you've heard of this, the rule of 10-10-80. 10-10-80. You give 10% to God and to his work as a reflection of your gratitude and his lordship in your life. You save at least 10%. If you start this early, it works really, really well. If you're at the end of the road, you might need to save more than 10%, Right? And then you live on the other 80. You do your live and your O and your O off of that 80. Maybe those numbers don't work for you. Maybe sacrificial giving is 20, 10, 70. You, you, you get to decide. Maybe you need to save a little more for college or for retirement or something like that. You can see these things coming. Proverbs also says, a wise man sees trouble coming or sees a need coming and makes the adjustment, makes the adjustment, but a fool keeps on going and suffers harm. And so we have an opportunity to grow our finances, to grow our ability to give, or grow our ability to exercise financial wisdom. And so you see this little pie chart here. It's not like every one of these should be at 20%, right? 10, 10, 80 kind of is one way to, to divvy that up. If you go to that QR code or you go to ronblueinstitute.com and the 4-H tool, you'll see a page that comes up. When you scroll down just a little bit, there is a 4-H assessment. This is something you can do. Nobody here is going to see it. Nobody there is going to see it. This is just for you. You can put your numbers into this assessment, and it will give you customized resources for, and show you some areas where your numbers might be a little out of whack. And so I want to encourage you, if, you're, if you've identified a financial reality that you need to face, there are tools. There are resources. Take one of these with you. Scan the QR code. Take the assessment. Read the resources that are there. There's books there. The 4-H tool is there. There's lots of teaching. There's supplemental videos that teach you more about specific areas. There's all kinds of things that you can do. Because the bottom line today is you cannot change a reality you will not face. And if there is something that has come to the forefront and there's a reality that needs to be faced, there are tools that can help you face that reality. Last week we had a couple people say, hey, you know, if somebody needs financial mentoring, I will help them. If you're one of those people that needs financial mentoring, put that on your connection card. We've got a ministry in town that we partner with that can also provide tremendous resources in financial mentoring and moving on and taking these steps. If there's a reality you need to face today, if there's a pen that you've been trying to write with and you keep turning it and you just keep spending more than you make or you just keep not giving, not becoming generous, whatever it is, it's not working, quit spinning it around, just chuck it. Get a new pen. God has provided us with a new pen that we can use that actually works. All this stuff that we're talking about actually works. And so whether it's the area of live or give, whether it's one of the O's, whether it's the growing, you realize, you know, we're doing pretty good everywhere, but we're just not saving any money. Maybe we need to make an adjustment in the way we live so that we have more that we can save and grow. Whatever the case may be, I want to encourage you to lean into that. Use the QR code. Learn and grow and apply. And then share what you've learned with somebody that needs that help. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're so grateful. So grateful for all the wisdom that your word contains about how we can live with financial wisdom, how we can live in the kingdom economics, how our current reality doesn't have to be our permanent reality. If there's something that's not lining up with biblical wisdom in regards to kingdom economics, I pray that your spirit would show us that, that we would lean into that, that we would face that reality. 
and start doing it your way. Be with us now as we respond. However we choose to respond, may we respond in faith to your word, to what you have revealed to us through it. In Jesus' name we pray.